Hi everybody, Mike Wardrock from Encounter Church here, and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you could have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teaching team. So it's Palm Sunday today. You're all familiar with Palm Sunday? Yep, often big palm fronds getting put down on the road or in front of people as, as Jesus, King Jesus enters into Jerusalem. So we're celebrating, commemorating what happened when Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem. And he entered like a, a conquering king, but he entered in a way that was very subversive and surprised everybody. We'll get back to that. Let's talk about surprises for a minute. Who likes surprises? Who are surprise people? All right, hands down, hands up if you're not surprised, people. You do not really like surprises. You like to know what's going on. You're always secretly control freaks, aren't you? No, that's all right. You don't have to answer. I already know. So I love surprises to the point that I'm the guy that, you know, at, at a gender reveal party is like trying to stop people from cutting the cake. I don't, that's a, don't know. Just enjoy the surprise when the child comes out. Okay, you can just get them wearing white or yellow for a couple of weeks. It's fine. It's not going to be a problem. I love surprises. When you're a parent, you've got to get used to surprises. And you just got to get like positive about the surprises because they're not always joy-filled surprises. Sometimes they're just nappy-filled surprises. And, but my wife is not a surprise person, like quite the opposite. She is anti-surprise. She likes to know what is going on before it happens. She's a very ordered woman. She's a very organized person. And she likes to be across things. And so if you tell her that a surprise is coming, she begins to stress out. So it's not so bad if something just happens. But if I tell her, hey, I've got a surprise for you. I'll give it to you Friday. That, anyone else that causes you major stress to go, the surprise is coming, but I don't know what it is. And so for Jen, I don't know if this is just like a long-term effect from me like coming home from Japan on Christmas Day and proposing to her on the same day and she didn't know any of it was happening. That's quite a lot of surprise all in one day. But also, guys, it worked. Here we are. <laughs> consider a surprise engagement. Just consider it. Surprise somebody on their doorstep, ask them to marry you. See what happens. That's your homework this week. Don't, don't do that. Online church, don't do that. Don't do that. All right. What I want to talk about, though, here is that people respond to surprises differently, right? And so Jesus came unexpectedly, like a surprise, into Jerusalem. He came in a way that people did not expect, weren't prepared for. And because people respond to surprises differently, that meant some of them responded to it with joy and an overwhelming feeling of excitement and enthusiasm. Others, not so much. Others, not so much. And this is what it says in the front of one of my old NIV Bibles, and I absolutely love it. This, this is the story of the Bible, creation, life, and beauty, undone by death and wrongdoing, regained by God's surprising victory. So church, tonight, as we look at the image of the lamb, let's think about the surprising victory of God and what that means for you tonight. Amen? Amen. Okay, good, good. So let's start by looking at a very big surprise known as the Passover. Now, the Passover is a very significant holiday in the Jewish calendar. In fact, it's the first day of the Festival of Unleavened Bread. The Jewish people, they have great festivals, very quite rigid festivals, but they have a lot of them. They know how to festival. They know how to festival, which is not a sentence. And so the Passover, as many of you would know, came about during the Exodus when the Israelites were trapped in Egypt, enslaved by Pharaoh. God sends Mero, uh, Mero, Moses... To the Pharaoh, 
hence Pharaoh, sends Moses and Aaron to the Pharaoh to set the people free. He says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no, this happens 10 times with escalating plagues each time. Pharaoh had fair warning and again and again he reneges on his word until eventually we get to the last plague, the death of the firstborn son. Now, in this moment, God gives instructions to the Israelites. He says, this is coming, right? This is coming to Egypt, but you can avoid it. Here's how to avoid it. Very specific. If you want death to pass over your home, hence Passover, on the 10th day of the first month, you've got to take a healthy male lamb without blemish, without defect, and select it from your flock based on what you need to feed the entire household. Then on the 14th day, so four days later, you're preparing yourself for this event. At twilight, all the community would sacrifice the lambs needed for their home. They take some of the blood of the lamb and they would put it on the doorposts. And by doing so, it's like saying the blood is across the doorpost. The blood is on the wood. And the roast lamb then becomes the centerpiece of the shared meal, the Passover meal. So they have the roast lamb, they have the flatbread, unleavened bread, and they eat bitter herbs to remind them of the bitterness of the slavery they've endured, and they share wine together. And that's the Passover meal. And they have that and as they're ready to depart Egypt, right? So they have it with sandals on their feet. So we're talking locally sourced food. It's gluten-free. It's um, sandals. You know, they're wearing Burks. It's very Gen Z. It's a very Gen Z meal. And they're eating it with a roast lamb, which, I mean, how good, right? If you're not vegan, come on, roast lamb. How good? How good? Even if you are vegan, you're doing well by not eating roast lamb. Credit to you. So God says this to the Israelites. Put the blood of the lamb on the door frames, and that will protect your household from the power of death as it passes over you. And so from this and from the whole narrative of the Old Testament, we get this idea of the sacrificial lamb. You've all heard that phrase, right? The sacrificial lamb. This is where it comes from. And so we get it again and again in the Old Testament. It it becomes used through the temple system as an offering for sin, an atonement, a sacrifice made on behalf of the people of God. So this unblemished, flawless lamb, the priest lays his head on it, and then they sacrifice it. So the hand is about transferring the sin, like figuratively, spiritually. Not It's not like the priest's hand is magic or anything, but he lays his hand on the head of the animal, and then the animal is sacrificed. And so the sin of the people has been sacrificed through the blood of the lamb. You with me so far? Yes. All right. You just have to say yes anyway. And so, so we get the sacrificial lamb. Go a bit further in the Old Testament, King David. King David, before he becomes a king, is a what? Shepherd, thank you. Somebody went to Sunday school. Shepherd, or reads their Bible as a general principle. King David was a shepherd before he became the king. He was picked out of the flock by Samuel, so to speak, to, and anointed to become the future king of Israel. But before any of this is happening, before he, he knows what his path is going to be, he goes to feed his brothers who are at war with the Philistines. And in the middle of the war, they're all on one side, the Philistines on the other. No one's attacking. There's just one guy in the middle screaming obscenities, a giant called Goliath. And David says, why isn't anyone attacking him? And they just sort of point to him and say, have, have you seen him, the giantness of him? We're not attacking him. And he says, well, I'll fight him. And so they try and talk him out of it, but not heaps hard. And then they sort of send him out there as a sacrificial lamb on behalf of Israel. They say, okay, you will effectively take on the punishment of all the people because you're about to be killed by this giant. We're really sorry. Hope it was a good shepherding life up to this point. But the sacrificial lamb has a surprising victory. And this is the story of God. 
again and again. The lamb has a surprising victory. Let's go a little bit further in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 53, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah talks about what he calls the suffering servant. A servant that would take upon himself all the pain and affliction and suffering. This is what he says in verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. Once again, the image of the lamb is coming out, yet Isaiah expects that in the end, even though the suffering servant will suffer, he will triumph. This is the destiny of the suffering servant as a sacrificial lamb. You with me? You tracking me? It's good. Okay. But perhaps Genesis 22 is the most significant, prominent image of the sacrificial lamb. It is the story of Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac. If you've read your Bibles, I'm sure you're familiar with it because it is jarring. Abraham prays for decades with his wife, Sarah, for a child, for a son, to become part of the new legacy of his family. And God promises him, your, des- your descendants will be like the sands of the seashore. And he eventually gets Isaac. And Isaac grows up to a certain age. And God says, take your son who you love and sacrifice him to me. Now, this is jarring, not only because it's his son, but it's jarring because everything we know about God says he is against this. He is against the sacrifice of children. In fact, one of the reasons the Philistines were driven out of Canaan and overrun by the Israelites is because they were sacrificing children to their gods Baal and Molech and Asherah, these false gods and these fertility rites, they were murdering children. And so God said, this is evil. We will not have any of it. So we hear the story of Abraham and Isaac and immediately we go, this is wrong. This is not right. And so they go on their way to this mountain and imagine how long that trek was for them, particularly for Abraham. Isaac didn't know what was coming yet. So they go up there and eventually Isaac's a sharp enough boy. He says, Father, we got the firewood. I see the fire. But where's the sacrifice? Where's the sheep? Where's the lamb? And Abraham says this, and you've got to catch this. This is important. He says, my son, God himself will provide the lamb. And so we read on and they get to the top of the mountain and he builds the altar and he straps Isaac to it. And we never hear that Isaac says a word. We never hear that Isaac is fighting this. And he's strapped to the altar. He's prepared to be killed. We get the image of Abraham hanging poised over him, knife in hand, before an angel says, Abraham, Abraham, and calls out and tells him to turn around. And behind him is a ram trapped in the thicket. God has provided the lamb. And he unties Isaac and it becomes this powerful test of faithfulness that there is a sacrificial lamb that is now in place of the firstborn son. So the sacrificial lamb is a powerful image. Abraham comes to the end of this and he says, this place will be called Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord my provider. And that's because God provided him with a lamb instead of the firstborn son. And all of this is background to our passage tonight. So we get to the Passover meal. Jesus has found a specific place to eat the Passover meal with his disciples. He sent someone on ahead. They found a room. They've made it ready. And they've started to eat their meal. They're kicking back. The Passover is done in a lounging fashion, like it's actually prescribed. You have to lounge on cushions. How good is that? Find me some more public holidays where you have to prescribe lounging, please. So they're lounging. And they're enjoying their time, but hanging over this meal is something ominous. And it's this. Jesus has told his disciples three times that he will be going to Jerusalem to die. And here they are in Jerusalem, and here Jesus is, and they wonder what is coming next. 
And so they begin to eat this meal. Twilight comes, the beginning of Passover. They're enjoying each other's company. They're enjoying the food, enjoying the wine. And Jesus suddenly says to them, one of you will betray me. Just casual evening banter at the dinner table. Hello, my 12 closest friends. One of you will betray me to death. Like, well, okay, that's quite, quite, a, quite a drop to put in there. And Matthew tells us in his gospel that they were deeply distressed. Now, we know because the word Judas is synonymous with betrayal, that Judas is going to betray them. But in Matthew's gospel, we see that they didn't know. They had no idea. Their 12 best friends were gathered around Jesus. They'd been through thick and thin. They'd been through persecution, trial, trouble, doubt, torment. And suddenly after all this, one of them is going to betray them. Imagine what's going through their minds. But they don't point fingers at each other. They don't start to go, is it him? Is it her? Is it him? Well, actually, they're all hymns. <laughs> is it him? Is it him? No, they ask, is it me? Is it me? Which speaks to how they know their own hearts. Like, Jesus, is it me? And Jesus says, well, it's one of the people who's dipping the bread into the bowl. And they're like, well, we all did that. So that's not an encouragement. Like, that, that could be any of us. And of course, it's Judas. And Jesus knows. Jesus knows what's coming. Jesus knows that this Passover is a special meal. And that's why we don't remember it as Passover in the Christian tradition. We remember it as the last supper, the last meal Jesus shared with his disciples. And it's a significant moment because the cross is coming. Now, last week, we talked about the cup. We talked a bit about how we've domesticated the anger of God. We've domesticated the cross and tried to civilize it because we're not comfortable with God's anger. I encourage you, go and listen to that. If you've ever wondered about the anger of God, go and listen to that message because there's something in it for you. But as we get to the cross again, as we wrestle with this idea, you know, we realize that we try and not only domesticate it, but control it. We like to control the cross. If we wear it around our neck or put it on a wall in our home, it's easier than carrying it every day. And so we wrestle with this as followers of Jesus, or we should. But there's something else we haven't asked yet. Something about this whole metaphor of a lamb that we see throughout the Old Testament. And we begin to ask ourselves the question, Why? Why? Why a lamb? Like, why use the metaphor of a lamb? Can I tell you, if I was the Messiah and I'm coming to earth, I am not using the metaphor of a lamb. I'm using like a grizzly bear, right? Mike is coming like a grizzly bear in power and strength or like a, a snow leopard or something, you know, just sleek power or a sharknado. I don't know, but I'm not coming as a lamb, right? Yeah. Quote me on that. Mike is coming as a Sharknado. That's how my messianic force would work. Thankfully for you all, I'm not the Messiah. But they don't use any of these analogies. Instead, they pick something totally random. A lamb. A lamb. How pathetic is that? How do we know it's pathetic? Because they keep slaughtering lambs. Like if it was a powerful animal... They probably wouldn't be slaughtering it like that. They'd be running from it in fear. If this was a Siberian tiger messiah, they'd all be running before it. So why, why, why the lamb? Because the lamb is subject to the other forces. Because the lamb cannot choose. Because the lamb must be led by somebody else. Because God loved the world so much that he emptied his power and strength and instead took on and cloaked himself with humility and human weakness. See, Jesus willingly went to the cross, willingly led like a lamb to the slaughter, as Isaiah said. 
The only way that Jesus could come in this kingdom that he came to bring church, in this upside-down kingdom, in this totally countercultural revolution of grace he came to bring, could not be with power, could not be with might, could not be with strength, like the king the Jewish people were expecting, but with humility and grace and servanthood. That's why he said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to die as a ransom for many, as a ransom for you, as a ransom for me, as a ransom for the world. The king came for love, not for power, but for love. He had power. He gave it up for us. That's the kind of king we have. That's why the lamb matters. Because if he came as something stronger or mightier, we would have bowed down to him even while we thought about how we could overthrow him. But Jesus willingly allowed himself to be overthrown and tied to the cross, pierced for our transgressions. So the power of the kingdom of God then is seen through the laying down of our lives, the love of God, the vulnerability and humility of God. Isn't that a weird sentence? You ever think about that? Like when we say, oh, our God's a servant, our God's humble. It's like, just think about the sentence you're saying. Like God, the creator of heavens and earth, the creator of an ever-expanding universe and an infinitely microscopic um, universe within that is so challenging and creative that we can't even begin to understand it. That God comes humbly. That God comes as a servant. That God lays his life down for you and me who can barely like, wipe the Cheetos dust off us before finishing our Netflix binge. That's who God came to save. Now let's get back to the text because something's happening. We come back to the text. We come back to the table. The disciples are gathered around. They have listened to Jesus' shocking announcement that one of them will betray him. And the meal is there before them. They're breaking bread together. And Jesus holds it up and he does something weird, which is, you know, he, he interrupts the normal flow of a Passover meal and subverts it. And he holds up the wine and he shares it. And he says it's his blood. And they're like, oh, I'm not sure I super want to drink that, but okay. And they share it and he subverts that part of the meal. And they taste the bitter herbs. And they do all of this. But hang on, hang on. We're missing the center of the Passover meal. The herbs are there. The bread's there. The wine's there. Where's the lamb? The lamb, the roast lamb is meant to be on the table. But the lamb isn't on the table because the lamb is at the table. The lamb of God is at the table. Jesus is the true Passover lamb. And as you read the Passover narratives, you never read that they shared a meal of lamb because Jesus was the lamb giving up his life freely for us. We've looked at the Old Testament. Let me jump to the new. John chapter 1. John the Baptist sees his cousin coming towards him for baptism. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. This is his cousin. But John sees something. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, The Messiah, our Passover lamb, has already been sacrificed for the Passover meal. In 1 Peter, Peter, nobody knew Jesus better than Peter. He said this, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God that paid the price. Jesus, like the atoning Lamb given for the Passover sacrifice, was without blemish, without flaw. So He not only died the death we deserved, but He lived the life we were meant to live. He was 
was the perfect Passover lamb in every way. He was pierced for our transgressions. He took upon himself the sin. He himself didn't have any sin, but he took it upon himself because he is the true Passover lamb. He took our place in every sense. I'm not even finished yet, church. I'm not even finished. We get to Revelation. John, the, yeah, always an interesting sentence. We get to Revelation and John, the apostle, wrote the book of Revelation. And when he did so, he has this vision of the future. And again and again, he has this vision of a lamb. And he writes this. No longer was the lamb a sacrifice. No longer was the lamb a victim. I wrote this bit, not John. The lamb instead was the king. The lamb is seated on the throne. The jarring image of a lamb seated on a throne. This image of victimhood, this image of sacrifice, this image of weakness seated on an image of power. And John writes this, this bits him. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing and the heavens and the elders and everyone around bows down in worship of this humble little lamb on a throne. And this is what is happening at the end of the surprising victory. The lamb is on the throne, the gentlest one, The humblest one, the one who takes suffering on himself is the one who sits on the throne. Church, Jesus is your true Passover lamb. He's the blood on the wood that protects you from judgment. He's the unblemished lamb that takes your sin on himself. He wins the surprising victory for you. He is oppressed and afflicted for you. He is the firstborn son sacrificed for you. God himself has provided the lamb. God has done all the work, all of it for you and for me. The firstborn son of God, Jesus, our true Passover lamb, has taken the fury and power of death on himself as victim so that you may be victorious. You online church, you 4pm service, that you may be victorious. Now the lamb of God took away the sins of the world. And God has provided. And let me tell you, if you're here and you sense this once and you've gone dry in your spirit God's done it once, he can do it again, amen? He's begun something that he's going to finish in you. He hasn't just left you with something. Our lives with Christ are not a singular spiritual experience that we rely on and then run off and hope that it serves us. At some point, the petrol is running out. We go again and again back to the well, back to the Spirit of God, pressing in in church, pressing in in our own time, receiving again and again the Spirit of God poured out on us from the Lamb who laid down His life on our behalf. Now, This is what I think God needs you to hear today. Church, you will never understand the lamb until you understand obedience. God is not calling you to a life of reckless abandon. Sometimes as pastors and preachers, we just say stuff, right? Like, I'll just let you behind the curtain. We just get excited. We're like, God is calling you to victory. Yes, what does that mean? You Just over armies. Like, what? What do you mean? What? I'm like an accountant. What are you talking about? What armies? Financial armies? Like, what's going on here? God God is going to defeat your enemies. Enemies? I'm a substitute teacher. Do you mean people with full-time work? I don't. What are you talking about? I, I, I don't understand the narrative. God is not calling you to these lives of random excess. He is calling you to lives of faith-filled obedience. 
And to understand the nature of the Lamb of God, you must understand obedience and humility and submission in your own spirit. Because the greatest threat going on in your life is not your enemies. It's not warfare. It's not even culture war. It is the submission of your own heart wrestling against the will of God into the comfort of our lazy boy chairs. It is much, much easier in Australia to rest in our comfort than to step out onto the water in willing submission to the will of God. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. You want to be on the water. Every time you're in worship, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're not standing there going, oh God, put me in the couch, Lord. Send me to Netflix, Lord. Lord, I'm just believing for more. I'm believing for just sort of a mid-level holiday on the York Peninsula. That's quite nice, but nothing too fancy. Nobody says that. You're saying, God, send me to the end of the earth. God, call me out on the water. Lord, I'm desperate for change. I want breakthrough. I want power. I want your authority. I want your spirit. I want to see miracles. I want my family and friends saved. We call out for this stuff. And then when God says yes, and he calls us out, we're like, ooh, that looks hard. And God's saying, if you want to understand the sacrifice of the lamb on your behalf, you've got to understand the pain and the power of obedience to the will of God. You've got to trust God the same way that Jesus did. He got to the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying so much and struggling so much that he begins to sweat blood. And he is overwhelmed to the point of death, he says. Yet he says, not my will, but yours. And as the people, the guards, the temple guards come out to arrest him, Peter, who thinks not with his head, but with his muscles, comes to start a fight. And Jesus says, Peter, I'm not the Lion of Judah right now. I'm the Lamb of God. Don't you think I could order down a legion of angels to rescue me? Of course I could. That's not why I'm here. Church, if you've been in a moment of brokenness lately, you feel out of control, you feel overwhelmed, you're desperate for a touch of God, but you feel so broken, you're feeling lost, you've been searching around spiritually, you've been searching around socially, you've been looking for anything that's going to tether you to a sense of reality that you're struggling to hold on to, you don't need more control. You need to submit to the will of God. You need to allow God the Father to pour out His Spirit on you, to trust Him, to fall back, just trust fall into the arms of the Father. And so whatever He says, you say yes. And tonight we're going to come to a place of worship and response. And God's calling some of you to say yes. God's stirring up some people in their spirit right now. He's calling you out on the water. He's challenging you out of your comfort zones. There's dreams he's placing on your hearts and you said, not yet. Not because God said not yet, but because you're afraid of them. There's people God has called you to invite, to reach out, say, hey, I want you to come to church with me. I want you to come to life group with me. And you haven't because you're afraid. It seems hard. Some of you here, you need to give your life to Jesus tonight. And it's not that you don't believe in God. It's just hard. You recognise that it's hard. And you're right, by the way. I don't want to diminish that. But the life of radical obedience God is calling you to is better than the life of irrelevant comfort 
that you will eventually slide into if you stop pursuing the voice of God. Thanks so much for listening. I pray that you were able to hear from God in a fresh way today. We would love to hear from our listeners. To connect with us or to financially support the work of Encounter, please jump on our website, encounteradelaide.com.au. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to jump onto iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast provider and give us a rating and review. Or share this message on your social media accounts and tag us at Encounter Adelaide. God bless. Have an amazing week.